Again, Father, we are grateful to be servants of yours. As we've studied in this class, Jesus was first servant, and he illustrated for us how to be servants as well. We pray that you will help us as we talk about servant ministry today, as we talk about serving you as faithful disciples, that your Holy Spirit will be in this class, that you will speak through me, and it's not my words, but yours, that will help us to serve you better. In Jesus' name, amen. Make sure my guns are loaded. Everything's running here. Does that look like that's running? Can anybody see a red REC on it? Yep, we're good. Hope it stays running. If anybody happens to notice that thing stop running, be sure to tell me. There are some numbers that move there and the, that red record at the top would stop. If that happens, be sure to let me know. How I'm going to solve it, I don't know, but anyway, that is good. All right, take your books here, and I'd like to, um, first of all, is anybody new here today? First time in the class, this is quite common. Now I understand that, be sure, and... I get the right one here. Yeah, this is it. If there's anybody else, Jeannie, right? Besides Jeannie, yeah. Carla, be sure and get it. Fran, be sure and get it. Great. Um, make sure you sign your name because that way I just, uh, I want to make sure you get all the materials that we give and it's nice for me to know who's gone through the training and so on so I can send you a lot of spam emails and that kind of thing. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Arlene just shakes her head. All right, today here's what we want to talk about. Again, this is the advanced course of deacons and deaconesses. Some of you participated in our basic course, and uh, we uh, just hit the highlights, skimmed the top, identified job description, and a few other key uh, elements and ingredients. The purpose of the advanced class is for us to zero in on some more important areas and get down into the depths of them and how they apply to you and how they work in ministry. So if you um, get my bearings here real quick. If you go to chapter 8, which we've talked about before, but I want to go back to it again for for a moment. It's talking about deacons and deaconesses as teachers of God's Word. It's page 49. And for those of you who are new, um, I've given out three books here, actually four to be exact. I don't have the fourth book right now. I'm hoping to get some more and uh, we're going to see if that all works out. Um, at any rate, the three books are this textbook, which is our main uh, source of uh, direction for our class, a workbook that goes with it, which is a workbook size. We're not looking at the workbook. That's for you to go back, and as you study this on your own uh, more in detail, it'll help to guide you through. And then I've also given you a copy of the handbook, the Deacon and Deaconesses Handbook, produced by the Ministerial Department of the General Conference. And this 
Deacon and Deaconess Handbook was not available last camp meeting. It came out between then and now, and so I'm providing it to you, and there's resources. It's my way of doing two things, saying thank you for attending the class, and God bless you with all the work you've got in front of you, and you're going to need the book to know what you're going to be doing, right? And uh, I want you to be able to have that and uh, to be a benefit to you. There are a lot of good little pointers in there, direction as you're thinking about this ministry, and it expands the ministry. These books and that book are very closely connected with each other in terms of content. Uh, this, uh, this particular author uh, comes from uh, his uh, background and his perspective, and I, I will mention uh, that uh, the culture that he comes from tends to be much more formal in a church service environment, and typically the deacons and deaconesses in the church uh, that he grow, grew up in and that uh, he was pastoring, you would, you'll see them dressed in uh, white shirts and, and black skirts and black uh, pants and, and white gloves. I love that. I think it's great. Not everybody feels great about it, but I love it. I think it's great because I think it's a great way to identify who the deacons and deaconesses are, who the leaders in the church are. And on Sabbath morning, they're there to serve, and they've got their name tags on and all that. I think the rest of us would do a good job to do that as well. At least wear a name tag. How's that? Okay. At any rate, my point is that uh, we all have some differences in relationship to that, but the bottom line is there's some basic principles we all work off of. And I'll deal with. All right, I want to talk to you today about deacons and deaconesses as teachers of God's Word. I know that you may have thought that being a deacon or a deaconess excluded you from having to be a teacher of the Bible, from giving Bible studies, from being involved in soul winning. That you've heard me say this so many times, but I have to say it, you know, for those that are new so that they get a sense of the feel here. So, those of you who've heard me say it four times already, You'll forgive me, and you'll recognize there are new people here today. Besides, repetition is a good teacher, right? Deacons and deaconesses are not appointed just to take up the offering, to get people to their seats, to manage the, the, uh, the people when they're getting baptized and helping them get in and out, making sure the baptistry is filled, caring for the plumbing and all that kind of thing. That's not just what deacons are all about. And one of the things we've learned in our study, both from the Word of God and from, from this book that's helping to focus that, is that the deacons were first appointed not to fix the plumbing. They didn't have buildings, okay? And they didn't have indoor plumbing. There was none of that to be done. Deacons were first appointed to care for the needs of people, the physical needs of people, but also the spiritual needs of people. But what we have said up to this point is the reason that some of the other things weren't pointed out in the job description of an elder or a deacon is because the other things that we don't do as deacons and deaconesses today were assumed to be done by the people because they were Christians. And that means being a disciple. Philip was a disciple. He preached the Word of God. God transported him to the, uh, led him to the Ethiopian eunuch and then physically transported him back to where he wanted him to be. But he'd sent him there to preach the gospel message. It wasn't Paul. It wasn't Peter. 
It wasn't James. It wasn't any of those people. It was Philip the deacon. Who was the first martyr for preaching the word of God to the Sanhedrin? It was Stephen. It wasn't Peter. It wasn't Paul. It was Stephen. It was a deacon. Why? Because these people were first Christians. They were first committed Christians, given their lives to Jesus Christ. And because of what Jesus Christ had done in their lives, they'd accepted the call to be disciples. And they taught the message any way God gave them opportunity to do it. And that included with the mouth. So you and I are first deacons and deaconesses. We are first disciples and then deacons and deaconesses, right? That's what God has in mind for us. And so that's the platform I'm building on. I'll come back to that here in just a moment. But uh, the author here does talk a little bit about this work and gives a little bit of the history of how people were involved in this process. And we quoted a little bit of this. Go to page 51, and I want to point out uh, uh, something here just to reconnect us to the book and where we're going today. Actually, go to page 50 at the bottom of the page. And it says, uh, he says there, Rosalind Brown, although an Anglican writes from a wider Christian tradition, she states that proclaiming the gospel is one of three strands that makes up the diaconal ministry. Okay, the work of deacons and deaconesses. Even though preaching during the main worship service is not necessarily the role of deacons, Brown says that it is appropriate that they be trained to preach. This training prepares them to present God's word within the varying context of their ministry. Brown gives the following examples to show the importance of deacons being trained to preach, proclaim the gospel. Number one, a deacon may be requested to preach at a baptism, a wedding, or a funeral, especially when he or she has been the catalyst for the person coming to church. Now, typically, you know, a wedding is being led out by an ordained minister. But you know what? The truth of the matter is the only part that legally a minister has to do is say, I now pronounce you husband and wife. That's really the only part of that that has to be done. Somebody else can preach that. And they, for example, they allowed me to preach at a sermon once, and somebody else did the pronouncing because I wasn't ordained yet. And, they, uh, and I was in a situation where I needed to do that. So I could speak, but I couldn't pronounce. Deacons could technically do that if they had some special connection and influence. Anyway, let's not get bogged down in that. Number two, if a deacon is also active in the local school during the week, he or she can help connect people to the church. Three, conducting services during nursing home visits. Four, leading a small Bible study group or an inquirer's group. Five, sitting in someone's living room discussing a favorite Bible text with them. I will add having a Bible study with them, but she didn't come from that background. Or six, conducting a bedside communion during a hospital visit. Typically, we do that with elders. This is, she's coming from her own um, Christian background and her connection there, not uh, the way we would not typically do with deacons. Elders typically do the, do the communion, not the deacons. But they could participate with it and be a part of that. But my point is, this is a tradition that's been around for a long time. God's church has been... You excuse me just a moment. I would normally do this, the exception of who it is, is my point. Well, that didn't quite work. 
Well, Lord solved that problem. I just hung up on him. He happened to be my associate, and my associate wouldn't be calling me if it wasn't something important, so that's why I was doing that. My wife and my associate, those are the people you gotta pay attention to. <laughs> so, the point of this is, is helping us to recognize that the work of soul winning and preaching the truth and teaching other people the truth of God's word is not a, is not a work that is forbidden to deacons and deaconesses. As a matter of fact, it is part of your work because, first of all, you are a Christian. Go to the next paragraph down there. According to Brown, deacons are charged to reflect on Scripture with God's people so that the whole church is equipped to live out the gospel in the world. When a deacon fails to do this, Brown says, the deacon's own ministry in the world will suffer because he or she will be doing it all on behalf of the people who see no need to be engaged for themselves. However, the deacon who is known to be active and engaged in ministry in the world is the same person who reflects with people, the people of God on God's word and their own vocation to serve God, who catechizes, you know, that's another denomination's term, not ours, and leads them by example in living the gospel wherever they are, then they, there can be no excuse for anyone to drive a wedge between seeking nourishment in Scripture and getting involved, deeply involved in the world. There is no option of it being either or since the deacon embodies the complementarity. All right. I want to remind you that this author is a Seventh-day Adventist minister author, but he's writing this in the context of a doctrinal dissertation. So he's quoting from a lot of different people to be exhaustive in relationship to looking at how the church developed the deacon and deaconess role over time. But he's putting it into the context of the Adventist church. He talks about the background of the uh, of deacons and deaconesses involved in in the the work of uh, uh, deacon and deaconesses, and he's exploring all of that. All of it's just helping us to zero back in and focus in both on what the Word of God says about the role of deacons and deaconesses, and what the Spirit of Prophecy says about the role of deacons and deaconesses. So it's confirming to us that this is a biblical foundation that has already been laid. God asks you first to be a disciple and then to be a deacon. But when you become a deacon, please do not stop being a disciple. God still needs you to be a disciple. So now you can proclaim the Word of God, and God still needs you to do that. So as we get into uh, some pieces here, I'm going to put some, some things on the screen that I shared with the elders earlier. I'd like you to see this quotation because it gives the foundation for the direction the Michigan Conference is going in relationship to soul winning. This is a very important area for you as deacons and deaconesses, and I'll explain it as we get a little bit more into it, because of your role in your churches. You are part of the Michigan Conference, and we have tools that, that we want to share with you and that we are providing to churches, and they will only be valuable to you if you have some understanding of the context. So let's look at this quotation from Christian Service, page um, 59. It's from chapter 5. The chapter's title is Training Center Churches. Her quotation actually speaks of a training center school, I mean a training school for Christian workers, and here's the quotation. 
on the screen. Many would be willing to work if they were taught how to begin. You see that? As a matter of fact, just to help us focus in on, would you quote, I mean, would you read that with me, that one sentence again? All together. Many would be willing to work if they were taught how to begin. Many people in our church are not willing to serve and to work and don't answer the call of the nominating committee when it comes to taking on a task, not because they're lazy, but because they don't know how to do the work. And most of the time, the nominating committee is desperate to get somebody to work, and they don't take the time to train, because that's not the job of the nominating committee, right? And so the nominating committee representative calls you up and says, would you be willing to be the head deaconess this year? I've never been a deaconess. Well, you want me to be the head deaconess? I don't know how to do that. No, I'm busy. But they might not tell you all of that. They may just simply say no. Or you might just simply say no, to keep in context with my illustration. And you may simply say no, because nobody trained you. We get a lot of low no's on the nominating committee and the nominating committee work because people are not trained and they don't know how to do it. Ellen White says many people would be willing to do it if someone would teach them how to do it, which is why you came to the class today. And now we know that you're willing. How many of you are actively serving as deacons and deaconesses right now? Okay. I do that because I get new people in and I want to just kind of get a connection with it. All right. So Ellen White tells us that we should be training. And then she says this. I thought I'd change that. I did somewhere else. Every church should be a training school for Christian workers. How many of you went to school? When you went to school, did you go to school under teachers? Did the teachers know what they were talking about? Don't answer that question. <laughs> you went to school hoping that the teachers knew what they were discussing, what they were teaching, all right? It's not exactly the same thing I said before, but it's close, right, Jim? I'm just teasing him because he's had to hear me say this so much. Teachers hopefully know what they're talking about. And in the state of Michigan, in order to be a teacher, you have to have an education. And you have to be certified at some point, certified as teachers, to make sure that you're proficient. So if you're teaching math, you need to be certified in math. If you're teaching Bible, uh, the church wants you to be eventually certified in that. If you're teaching uh, uh, any other class, geometry, or, why am I in the math subjects? I can't get out of that. Uh, history or whatever, you need to be certified in that. Anyway, the bottom line is you want to sit under a teacher who knows what they're talking about. When you go to the Christian school, the church school for Christian workers, you hope that the teachers know what they're talking about. So who are the teachers? The pastors. Is that right? Yes, that's true. Some of them. But that's not what she's talking about here. She's talking about the fact that the church should be a training school for Christian workers and that we should all, especially the leaders, be able to provide the training that's needed. And as you look at this, you stop and think about what it is that she suggests. She says, first of all, its members should be taught how to give Bible readings, how to conduct and teach Sabbath school classes, 
how best to help the poor and to care for the sick, how to work for the unconverted. There should be schools of health, cooking schools, and classes in various lines of Christian help work. There should not only be teaching, but actual work under experienced instructors. Do those experienced instructors always have to be pastors? She doesn't say that. If If it's teaching someone how to give a Bible reading, why does that have to be a pastor? Why can't it be an elder who has had experience in giving Bible readings and can teach that to new members in the church or older members in the church who've never done it? Why couldn't it be a... Oh, you said it. You did. Why couldn't it be a deacon or a deaconess who is also able to do that? How to conduct and teach Sabbath school classes. Any of you teach Sabbath school classes? Yeah, see, you're deacons and deaconesses. You teach that. You could teach someone else how to teach that Sabbath school class. How best to help the poor and care for the sick. Well, we've already talked about that, how important that work is and the the nature of that work and how it can reach not only within the church but outside of the church. But as deacons and deaconesses, you could be teaching other people how to do that work. It's not just that you need to do that work. You want to be involving all of the members of the church in this process. And part of the difficulty we have today is that only a few people are doing the work. The level of work that needs to be done is there. That's the 100%. But the number of people that are helping to do that work is way down in the 20% range. And for some reason, that seems to hold pretty straight across. It's a statistic that's taught in seminary, and it seems to be true in the field. Can you believe that? They teach something in the seminary that's true in real life. What? Even the conference teaches something that's true in real life. I should say that, right? Let's put us all in the same plane. Let the teachers lead the way in working among the people, and others uniting with them will learn from their example. One example is worth more than many precepts. Wow. There's a powerful paragraph here, and I want to take it apart just a little bit to be able to make sure that we get a couple of pieces. And to be able to take it apart in the best way, I want to turn this part of the comp- get out of this part of the computer if I can figure out how to. Yeah, there we go. It did it. All right, here's what I want to uh, want to be able to share with you. Um, Take a look at some of these areas that need strengthening in the local church. One of those areas has to do with this area. Go back here. Has to do with this particular area that you can see up on the screen. Giving Bible readings. That's giving Bible studies. Now, how many of you ever have seen the book uh, Bible Readings for the Home? Great book, right? changed a lot of people's lives over the period of time. It's still available and still a great, great book. You know, sometimes we make giving a Bible study far more complicated than it needs to be. People just want to learn the truth. They're not always worried about whether or not you have a PhD degree and have a teaching in teaching so that you can, you know, teach them. They just want to know the truth. They want to get that information. We do it mostly today by using Bible study pamphlets, and that works really well. There are lots of ways that we can do that, but you can be involved in that work. 
And here's what I want to suggest to you. If it's not something that you are used to doing and you're not giving Bible studies today, I want to remind you you are a disciple and God is calling you to that purpose. And I want to encourage you to reactivate that experience in your life if it's something you did in the past. If it's something that you have never done, then this is the time to get the training that you might need to do. And don't think it's as hard as you think it is. Ask the pastor to help you. Ask somebody else in the church who's giving Bible studies or given Bible studies in the past and who's willing to get involved with you because you want to join the Bible study reformation. I like the word revolution better. My word, my idea goes to that all the way. Have you been hearing about the Bible study reformation? Yeah. I don't know. Raise your hands. I've seen... Oh, that's... Uh, I feel better. I can actually see that because we're talking about it right here on the campground, right? Grow Michigan. This is phase two of Grow Michigan. We are moving on with that reformation Ellen White saw. You need to be a part of that and you're part of a training center school. And so as a leader in the school, you want to be able to be involved in that and doing that. How to conduct and teach Bible Sabbath school classes. Some of you are already involved in that. You could have more teachers if you would teach them how to do it. Maybe you've been a teacher for 40 years. You think it's time to get somebody else to help? How best to help the poor and the care for the sick? You can teach that. It's not just the work of the community services. We probably have about 60 or so, I don't know exactly what the number is, community service centers in Michigan, but we've got... Thank you. I knew somebody might know the number. Great. I'm glad it's higher than I thought it was. Thank you, Joyce. I appreciate that. She's involved in community services and the Federation work, so she knows what she's talking about. So there's 72 community service centers out there in the Michigan Conference. How many churches are there? Almost 200. All right. Why are we not caring for the needs of those communities as well? We need to be caring for them. So deacons and deaconesses, if you don't have a community service center, you've got a ready-made opportunity to get involved in this work. But you also want to teach other people to do it, like including the young people in your church. We'd have more young people if we gave them more work to do. How to work for the unconverted. How to work for the unconverted. Somebody pointed out in the elders class that some of those unconverted people are in the church already right so don't forget them but then she says the schools there should be schools of health oh, temperamental here there should be schools of health cooking schools classes in various lines of Christian help work cooking schools is a great place Seventh-day Adventist churches in Michigan have been doing it for quite a while lifestyle matters has been developing materials for you to make it possible for every church to do one with professionally prepared materials there's no excuse for every church not participating in conducting health classes that's part of fulfilling what's talked about here but if there are people in your church who might be interested in doing it but are afraid to do it because they've never done it, maybe they just need some training. So call Vicki Griffin and say, come and train us. And she may say, okay, it'll be a little while before I get there. Or, you know what? There's somebody in the church nearby who can train you to do that. But one way or another, that training can be provided and you can take advantage of it. Many of you don't need the training, even if you've never done it before. Get the material and simply do the classwork as it's outlined there. Even let it teach itself, because it comes pre-recorded with that information on it in some cases. Okay. Evelyn Kissinger also. <coughs> yep. And yep. whenever 
everybody thinks that when we have a, our spring and fall meeting for community center, that it's just for those people. It's for anybody right. and everybody that wants to come. Right. And we have all kinds of schooling on community service work. So watch for that in your area, your church, your district. When the announcement comes up that the Federation uh, meeting is coming up, and recognize that there are opportunities there. Now, it generally is held during the day, so if you aren't able to get there, recognize that. But there are all kinds of resources. The problem in the Adventist church is not resources. It's not. It's willing people to do that work. All right, now here's what I want to share with you. I don't want to belabor this point too much more. I've made the point pretty clearly, a little bit of repetition here. We all need to learn, and we learn best under somebody who's had the experience. I had the privilege as a, as a young preacher. I went to the seminary from 1978 to 1980. At the end of the uh, training there, a new institution had opened up in Chicago. It was called the Lake Union Soul Winning Institute. And uh, it was run by a man by the name of Mark Finley. Maybe some of you have heard of him. And I had the privilege of going there and spending uh, three months at the Lake Union Soul Winning Institute. There, the plan actually there was for people to spend six months there, but the Michigan Conference hadn't decided that that was the best way to do it. They decided they wanted us only to go there for three months. And so I went there for three months and I worked with, with Mark Finley. I'm telling you, it changed my ministry, it changed my focus, it changed my direction. It was the, one of the best things that ever happened to me. One of the individuals that was assisting Mark Finley at the time was the person that I believe brought him into the church. His name is Marion Kidder. Marion was a minister and he uh, gave Bible studies and taught us how to do that. He would take us out, he took me out, and, uh, and would, was giving Bible studies to real people. You know what I mean by that? It wasn't a fake setup and somebody's Adventist home or whatever. He was giving Bible studies and while he was out giving Bible studies, he took us to go watch him give those Bible studies. Man, I'm telling you, in two or three visits with him, I learned more than I'd learned up to that point. And I had spent a year out as an intern as well, but the pastor hadn't taken me out doing that kind of thing. But Marion Kidder took me out, and I'm, wow, why, how did I learn? One of the things I learned, I learned the hard way. You know, we learned through the school of hard knocks or mistakes. And one of the things is I did in going in that, in that Bible study class, is, uh, in that Bible study, I opened my mouth to share some thoughts. After I got back in the car, Marion said, don't do that. Not a good idea. A little deflating to my ego, but there was a reason. Why did he tell me that? Because I was his prayer partner, but I also he was the teacher, and I... If I start chiming in, it's very easy for me to sidetrack the direction that the teacher's trying to go, working with that individual, knowing their background, knowing where they're coming from. And it was a very important lesson to me. It's the same thing I teach other people who might go with me on a Bible study. I'd say, okay, now as I'm going here, I want you to know, I don't want you to say anything. You can pray, you can be a part of it. Now, if I do something really stupid, like say that Sunday's the Sabbath, then chime in, all right, correct it. But other than that, be quiet, because I know where I'm going, but I want you to see where I'm going. 
And it's sometimes a little deflating to ego, but pretty soon people pick up on it and begin to realize what the value is. When you're leading, you lead. And when I'm, if I'm training somebody, I'm going to let them lead at some point, and I'm going to be quiet. But I might teach them afterwards when we get back in the car and work on that basis. All right, my point is, that's the value of working with people who are experienced because they can teach you things in a few minutes that you would have a hard time learning. One of the challenges that we've had with organizations like, um, like Arise and Emmanuel, to the credit of Emmanuel, that Emmanuel came to us in the conference office and asked us some questions when they first started. And they said, what is it you want us to do that would be different than what Arise was doing? Those of you who know the history that uh, David Ashrake was here with Arise for a while and then he left and went somewhere else. Now we've all been learning in these schools and trying to figure this whole process out. But one of the weaknesses of Arise at that time, I didn't say today, but one of the weaknesses of Arise in its first evolution, its first generation would be a better word, was that they weren't taking the, the, the students out and showing them how to do Bible studies in a real Bible study setting. They were just sending them out and letting them do the Bible studies. And then there would be some conversation afterwards. But you don't learn the best way that way because you're not seeing the teacher teach. But the problem was there was only one teacher and there were all these students and that was part of the challenge. All right, I've illustrated my point enough. So my suggestion to you is look at your church and find out who the experienced Bible study givers or whatever it is that you're trying to work with and then watch them do it and then from that learn and then let, ask them to let you do it while, you, while they watch you so that you can learn from what they teach you but also by doing it. Okay. Let's keep going. Here are some principles of a training center church that are really critical and are fundamental for you as deacons and deaconesses and leaders in your church. First principle is every member is a disciple. What's that word? Every, every member is a disciple. Let's go back to what we talked about a few moments ago. 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. It's time to turn that around and get 80% of the people doing their share of the 20% of the work in the sense that they do part of it, you do part of it, and pretty soon you get pretty close to getting 100% of the work done. Part of the reason is we've not asked people, I don't mean just simply asking, we sometimes ask people, elders, and we talked about this, you ask somebody to come and do something on the platform, and they say no, and so we never ask them again. You know what? What if you said, and I'll use the illustration I used with the elders this morning, what if you said, look, you said no to doing the scripture on, the, uh, on Sabbath morning. The reason you said no was, was because, well, I'm terrified, I'm scared, I've never done it before, I don't know how to read the Bible real well, and, and, I, and I, whatever. Well, the truth of the matter is I've seen you read the Bible before, and I know that you read pretty well. But being up front may be uncomfortable with you, and that's, I understand what, what that's all about. So here's what I'm going to suggest. You said no now, and that's fine, I'll take that no, but in four weeks I'm going to have you read the scripture reading. Okay? But between now and then, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to meet you at the church. I'm going to give you the scripture reading that you're going to read for that particular Sabbath. And we're going to practice it. 
and I'm going to, we're going to practice what you'll do. We're going to actually go sit on the platform and you're going to see how to behave at the platform and come up and you'll see how to work with the microphone. You'll see how to, to uh, speak out loudly enough and, and with enough volume that people will be able to hear you and you will have confidence in reading the scripture. Okay, I'll do that. That would, that would help. I'd be willing to... You see what I'm saying about teaching people how to do that? But it's getting every member involved in that process. But it's also the other part of it. It's the discipling process of getting people involved in being disciples themselves. I didn't bring my book here and the, one of them got taken. I think Evelyn... Evelyn, can I use that real quick? This book is one that you should be using in your churches. I would like to feel, this is a discipleship handbook. I believe that every, oh, I'm not in the picture, oh good. As long as it's not off, is it still running? Okay, that's good. I'll stay in the picture, thank you. I have a tendency to wander. The discipleship handbook is indeed the, a tool to be able to use. How many of you have read it? Okay, that's about half of you. Good. If you don't have it, don't leave here without it. Um, I'm hoping I'm going to get a few more up here. I gave some out in this class. Some of you already got it. And I'm going to get some more. And we run out here on the campground, but I'm hoping that my associate was able to get some more up here. And if that's the case, I'll have some tomorrow. We will see how that all works. But the purpose of this is to help everybody to be a disciple. Some churches are using this in prayer meeting. I think it's a great way to uh, involve that because a lot of our church members do not, did not have a discipling experience themselves. And so this is new for them. So elders and deacons and churches are going through this for the first time and being uh, challenged to be disciples themselves. But this should be true for every single church member because we're all Christians Seventh-day Adventist Christians, we've all given our hearts to Jesus, and the command of Jesus in Matthew 28 applies to all of us, that we should be faithful in sharing the truth. But it's more than just that. It's also living the truth, and there's all of that in here. Let me give you a few of the titles that are in this book by reading here. There's uh, six sections. The first section is discipleship. It's an introduction. The second section is devotional life. Five chapters talking about the devotional life and strengthening the life of, devotional life of, of individuals. In the back of this book is a devotional plan. It's so good, I use it myself every day. This is my devotional plan. It's similar to the one that Elder Dan Collins, who used to be an evangelist in Michigan before his death, um, shared with me and I was using. But this one is a slightly revised plan as an inclusive of some of the other Ellen White books in the Bible reading plan. And what it is, is uh, you read through the whole Bible together with the Conflict of the Ages series, which is Patriarchs and Prophets Through Great Controversy, that series of books, together with Mount of Blessing and Steps to Christ. There may be a one other one here. I can't remember what it is. But anyway, they're all, what's the other one? That's what the man of blessing. Thank you. All of these are in the back of this book, and it just every day you read that section, and by the time you get done reading all the way through that, you've read all of those books and the Bible together. It's like a college course in the Bible. It's fabulous. It's exciting. It's fun. And I look forward to it every day. It really is terrific. So anyway, 
So that's it. not only does it tell people to do it, it even provides a resource in the book on how to be involved in the devotional life. Uh, the next section is dealing with personal witnessing. Well, that's part of discipleship, certainly. But it's not the only part, but that's part of it. The next section, four, is about church life, like sacred assemblies, sacred ceremonies, God of order, only one thing to fear, tell it to the world, a number of different things here about the church life and the kinds of things that are involved here so people understand how the church operates and how it is organized, Christian lifestyle. You know, some, so many times we baptize people, we teach them about the Sabbath, but we never illustrate it for them. We tell them that you need to keep the Sabbath. Okay? They agree and they say, all right. And so at baptism, they raise their hand and say, I agree to keep the Sabbath. But nobody's ever shown them how to do it. But this helps to reinforce this and gives opportunities. And here's what happens. There's a, by the way, Evelyn, don't forget to get the uh, mentor's guide that goes with this. And I don't think I'm out of them here, so I'll make sure that you get it. But in the mentor's guide, it says that when you come to the Sabbath issue, invite those people to your home and spend a Sabbath with them. Show them the, how, to, how to welcome the Sabbath in. Another time, show them how to say goodbye to the Sabbath and have Vespers time and how to keep the Sabbath during that time all by illustration and teaching them. And all of this is taking place after a person is baptized. This is the kind of thing that solidifies people in the church because they become active members and they become disciples because we're teaching them all these things. Cycle of evangelism is the last section. That's what's happening here with us. I've got to leave the picture to give it back, but I will do it. I'll leave the, leave the framework here. Okay. So every member a disciple. Jim? Uh, I just wondered about the timing. You would, uh, let's say you had a couple that hadn't been baptized yet, mm -hmm. but had been coming to church and made that decision to get baptized, you wouldn't necessarily hand them. Not yet. Not and I'll tell you what, number three on the screen, let me come to that and I'll go right okay. into that, okay? Number two, the church is a training center for disciples. That is the second principle. It comes out of what we've already been talking about, so I'm not going to belabor that one anymore. Number three, see, I can come and answer your question pretty quickly. All new members must be trained as disciples. We are at a point where we've got to get to a level playing field, and we need to get all our members in. But eventually, I hope that before Jesus comes, we get all our members having gone through the discipleship handbook or something similar. That's not the Bible but it is a tool, a resource. In Michigan, I hope all the members of Michigan go through that and learn how to be a disciples. Then when any time a person is baptized, that they are immediately connected with somebody. Through the deacons and deaconesses, oh, you know what? They're coming out of the baptistry and you're ready. Now, they'll plan it before that, but this is my illustration that they go from the baptistry into a mentoring experience. And it could be a deacon or a deaconess who does it. It might be an elder that does it. It might be um, the person who gave them the Bible studies who's neither a deacon, a deaconess, or an elder. You notice I never said the pastor. Right? right. Because... He needs to be continuing on with his work, but you need to be involved in this work of solidifying them and getting them connected into the church and doing that work. When to do it? The answer to that is when they're baptized. This, is, this book is designed for people who are baptized. 
The information in it assumes that they've made a commitment to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Yes, do they need to be disciples early on? Sure, but God's taking care of that process. And they're becoming disciples. Many of them are becoming disciples long before they are baptized. They're inviting their friends and all to the Bible studies. They're even maybe inviting them to church. And if they've been attending church for a while, they may have invited them to come and they're, they're doing that kind of work. Yes, they're being disciples, but it's that disciple is more than someone who leads Jesus, leads people to Jesus. It's also someone who's continuing to grow in that relationship with Jesus and is becoming deeper and they're also then beginning to know what to teach other people as they're learning how to live that life. So after baptism, I would say this, within the first two weeks after baptism, they should start the sequence. It's set up for 26 weeks and uh, the ideal thing would it be go straight through for 26 weeks. Now there's a real world out there and people go on vacation in the middle of that 26 weeks and it doesn't mean it all has to fall apart, you just delay it a little bit. But it should be consistent and it should be good follow-up so that people are solidified in the church. When they get done with that 26 weeks, they're far more likely to stay in the church and to be solidified in the church. So all new members must be trained as disciples. Now I'm going to keep going here because I want to share the next thing with you and that is this, what we call mission essentials. Now the print's a little small up there so in the back you may have a hard time reading it but it is out there, it's on the internet too, I didn't mention that to the elders this morning but it's also out there as well. It's been part of something we call the master plan of evangelism. How many of you have heard of the master plan of evangelism? Well, only a few of you. You should be involved in that process at some point because the master plan of evangelism for your church is just your church's plan of what you're going to do for the next year in evangelism and it should eventually make its way to the church business meeting. How many of you have board meetings every month? You know your church does. Now, you're not all head deaconesses so, or deacons, so you don't all go to that church board meeting, but you know your church has those board meetings. You should be having a board meeting every month. How many of you have a business meeting regularly in your church? Oh, 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 oh. Did you see what's happening? Okay, raise your hands. Raise your hands high. You have a business meeting. Oh, that was a little better, a little weak at first. But you know what? Did you see? Look around you. If you're in the back, you saw easily. Barely half of people are raising their hand for a business meeting. All right, what's going on with that? What's the purpose of a business meeting? Okay, you folk are deacons or deaconesses, and it is to share these things and help the church to be able to grow with it. See, you should be having a master plan of evangelism for your church for a year. That's what we ask every church to do, is to have a master plan of evangelism. We ask them to turn it into the church uh, to the conference on October the 25th. There's some changes going in and exactly how that looks and what it looks like, but still the idea of planning is still necessary. Every church needs to do it. But after you get done planning, you also need to do the work, right? And I'm going to come back to that in a moment as I go through these essentials. These mission essentials, about five years ago, quick, real brief history, about five or six years ago, a couple of the leaders in the Michigan Conference were working on how are we going to build discipleship into our churches. And we had never really been concerted in our efforts in doing this. We had knew some principles and that kind of thing. 
But those leaders got together and they started saying, look, let's try this. Let's experiment with these things. We were basing it off of this passage in, in, that we just read in, in uh, Christian service. And we said, let's go to these churches and do it. Boy, I tell you what, you, looking back on that whole experience, how we did not know what we were doing. We chose three churches. We went to those churches and asked the pastors if they would participate. And then we asked the boards if they would participate, and they all were willing to do it. I can't believe they said yes. And we did some crazy things of trying to experiment with what to do and how to implement these principles and all. And out of that, we eventually came to a point where we said, look, we've got to, we've got to share this. Because when we got down with our experiment, we gave them six months, and we said, let us experiment on you for six months. I don't think we put it quite that way, but more or less that way. And when we got done, we said, okay, we're done with the six months. If you want, we'll go away. And to the credit of those churches, they said, no, 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 we need to keep doing this. We haven't gotten there yet, but we still need to keep doing it. We're headed the right direction. We need to do this. And so we started to say, all right, if that's the case, then we need to start spreading it farther out. And we need to get it going a little bit more. So we went to the, de the uh, district superintendents. You all have a district superintendent in your district. You all understand the structure of our conference and how that works. There are 12 districts um, in our conference, and they're made up of uh, churches. District 1 is up in the UP, the whole UP and all the churches up there. There are several pastors up there, and they have pastoral districts, but I'm talking about those general geographical districts more, more than that. And we have 12 of those superintendents. They come together basically once a month, and we use them as a, as a sounding board. They're leaders, they're pastor leaders, uh, peer leaders in their area. And they share with us ideas, and we share ideas with them, and, and we work through them. We shared it with them, and they said, we think you need to do this, and out of that came this. And they said, yes, we think every church should understand that these are the essentials that every church should be incorporating into their, into their church experience. We took it to the conference executive committee, we took it to the lay leaders, uh, of our conference, the lay advisory committee, and they all uh, said, yes, we want to accept this and do that. We shared it with the pastors, and it's out there as part of the master plan of evangelism. It's built into it. I want you to know what they are because you are leaders in your church. So you're, they're there on the screen. The first one is every church is a healing community that nurtures love for God, love for one another, and love for the lost. It's a foundational statement that says we are here through the grace of God to share the gospel and the love of Christ with people. That's just a foundational, pivotal direction. The next statements are all progressive. I want you to see how they progress one to the next. The first one is every church has a soul-winning plan and discipleship strategy and plan. That is the master plan of evangelism or some form of it, whatever it is. Your church needs to have a strategy of what you're going to do. If you have no plan, you do have a plan. If you have no plan, it's the devil's plan. That's the one you're using. The devil's plan is the one that you're incorporating and you're using because the devil's plan is for you to do nothing. And so if you have no strategy and you have no plan, that's the plan you're utilizing. You don't want to use the devil's plan, right? Okay, so make sure you have a soul-winning strategy and plan. Number three, the priority of every church board is planning soul-winning and discipleship in all of its phases. If you develop a strategy and a plan, it's the board's job to implement that plan 
as the church decides that's what they want to do. Now, what really should be happening is the church should be getting together in a business meeting, which you don't have, and talking about that plan and implementing it. It might be the people that have planned it will bring it to that business meeting, but the church should all be getting excited about that, and every single church member should be there at that meeting because they want to know what the plan is and how they're going to be involved in that plan and where they fit into that plan. Doesn't that sound like an exciting meeting? <laughs> Some of you have been to business meetings and you don't remember them being so exciting. That's because we haven't been making them exciting. All right, so anyway, once the plan is decided, it's the board's responsibility to implement that plan. Now, here's what I know happens in the real world. The average church that turns in a master plan of evangelism to conference waits until the next year to even think about it again. Never comes up on the church board again. Church manual says that the church board's responsibility is the implementation of the plan of evangelism. That's not us coming up with that idea. That's worldwide. And churches that are growing are the ones that are doing that. They're serious about it all the time. But if you are a head, you head deacon, raise your hand. Deaconess, also both. Head deacon, deaconess, either one. So you're all members of the board, right? Okay. If you're sitting on the board and your church board does not talk about your plan of evangelism every time you meet, it's your fault. You're welcome. <laughs> now, Fran, you know me well enough. Now, don't you beat up on me, okay? Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm making a point. You get my point? Because we are leaders. We are the ones who are responsible for helping to lead the church. Yes, the pastor should be doing that, and it should be automatic. But you have a mouth. You have a vote. You have a right to say, you know... I don't see on the agenda our evangelism plan. Of course, we're going to talk about that, right? And if it doesn't happen once or twice, then you start squawking a little bit and making sure that it's there because you want to see your church grow and you want to see them implement that plan. And it should be something that's happening at every meeting. All right, I can't bog down on that. Next thing, number four on the, on the uh, list is every department of the local church Oh, I didn't get hold it down long enough. Sorry. There we go. Every department of the local church fosters and actively participates in soul winning and discipleship. What are we talking about? Again, mission essentials. What's the mission? Save the world, right? Share the message, both of the gospel and the three angels' messages, which include messages which includes the gospel. To all the world, that's our job. Jesus is coming again. Babylon has fallen. Babylon has fallen. Don't receive the mark of the beast. Trust in the Lord. This message of righteousness by faith. That's all in that third angel's message as well. We need to be sharing that message. That's our mission. So we have departments in the church. Name some of the departments in the church. Personal ministries. Sabbath school. Bible studies comes into personal ministries, but yes, that's good, that's good. I'm sorry? Pathfinders, community services, women's ministries, health ministries, health outreach ministries. Bible school might be a, a separate department, could be. All right, these are some of the general ones, right? Interesting you didn't list, list the deacons and deaconesses. What else? Elders, 
Okay? All of those departments. Now, which of those departments are exempt from advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ? Okay? Tell me. The Sabbath school department, it's exempt, right? Why not? Okay. Our community services, they're exempt, correct? I expect Joyce to sound loudly on that one. All right? What about Pathfinders? Are they exempt? No. All right, then let me ask you a question. When was the last time your church board, those of you who sit on the church board, when was the last time your church board started asking all of these departments, what is your strategy for winning souls? When was the last time your Sabbath school class or your Sabbath school could actually say that somebody that had been attending that Sabbath school that was not a Seventh-day Adventist was now baptized because they attended that Sabbath school. Deliberately, on purpose. That's good. And keep doing it. Get the focus right. Keep your eyes on it. When was the last time that the Pathfinder Department in your church was included in the work of soul winning and and, and accomplishing part of that? Now, there's some natural things built into Pathfinders to make sure that happens and in relationship to their, their tasks because they've got a list of things to do. But sometimes we don't include them in the development of our plan for the church. We just do it. All right, hang on. I'm going to take a question or two. Tom, did I see? I mean... Uh, Jack, did I see your hand? Pardon me? When you push that through Sabbath school, and every, everybody is supposed to do an outreach, and everybody's got all the clips and nose and arrow, thumbs down, how do you go around and get around that? That's the wrong point that you have to say. It's only your church that has that problem. <laughs> okay, so come talk to me and we'll discuss it. Okay. All right, how do you deal with this? Because this is reality. The challenge, of course, and I'm repeating it for the recording, and that is that sometimes when you try to go that direction, people do this, all right, to use your illustration, and they say, we don't want to do that. This is part of the challenge we have with what Revelation 3 calls the Laodicean church. But God wants to change that, and we have to begin to change it one step at a time. I'm talking to you as the leaders the, elder, um, the deacons and the deaconesses, and in the morning, the elders. And I'm telling you this because it is up to us as leaders to begin to turn it around. You may not be able to do it at the board meeting and by telling everybody, now you need to start doing that. But you may be able to do it by working behind the scenes. You might be able to go to the Sabbath school superintendent and say, you know what? I've been learning some things about how the church needs to function, some things that need to happen. And I'd like to share them with you because I think they're great principles and I wanted to get your reaction to those principles. Now, you're not trying to tell them what to do, right? You're just going to share those principles with them. How they react from that begins to tell you what you're going to do next. If they buy right into it and they say, yeah, I get that. Why aren't we all doing that? that? Then you're on the right track and you've got things going the direction that you want to go. But we need to work with that and work as a team to do that and help to get that direction going. But let's stop and think about it. What could the Sabbath school be doing that would be more outreach-oriented than it is now? Soul winning. Uh Uh-oh. Who? who? Yeah, the Sabbath school could do that, right? They could even be teaching how to give Bible studies. It's Sabbath school 
when, when they get more involved in it, it opens the doors for everything. Mm -hmm. And that's the main thing is getting them involved because when, when it's you're like you're talking through a, a wall, it's hard to know what they're thinking, whether you're teaching them anything or not. But when you open up and they start conveying back and forth, the ball goes downhill fast and hard. And that's it. You're trying to get everybody involved. The Sabbath school, how many of you will admit that your Sabbath school's in trouble? I mean, your Sabbath school, your church is in trouble. Okay, do you get more people to church or Sabbath school? How many of you get more people to church than Sabbath school? Your Sabbath school's in trouble. Okay? In case you weren't clear on that, your Sabbath school's in trouble. Because our Sabbath schools have basically died off. There's nothing happening there. There are lots of reasons for it. I'm not going to get into all of that. The bottom line is it needs to change. When the, in the parts of the world, in the places in the world, whether it's the United States or anywhere else, where the church is really growing, the Sabbath school is larger than the church service. And the reason is because people are coming to Sabbath school to learn the basic Bible truths. And the other thing is I believe that the Sabbath school can be an environment where we are teaching people about how to give Bible studies or how to do outreach and doing how wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if your Sabbath school class said you know we're involved in this we're part of this the Sabbath school separate superintendent organized the Sabbath school and said all right on the last Sabbath of every month our Sabbath school classes are going to do some kind of an active outreach together Either, I mean, as a class it might be or whatever. So you choose what you're going to do. So one Sabbath school class says, well, we're going to go to the nursing home and we're going to sing and we're going to uh, benefit the people there. Well, that's, that's an outreach. That's caring about the people there. That's good. Now, if you're all going to the nursing home and that's all you ever do, you're missing out on a lot of people in your community you need to be ministered to. But the problem with it, the reason we default to, to uh, nursing homes is because it's a captive audience and it's a captive program. It's really easy to pick up the phone and say, can we come and sing to your people? That's really easy. But what about all the other people in the community who need to know the truth? What if another Sabbath school class said, we decided we want to pass out glow tracks this Sabbath. So we're going to go out as a, as a Sabbath school class. We're going to go two by two, and we're going to cover this whole neighborhood, neighborhood with, uh, with the why I keep the Sabbath, uh, uh, why I keep Saturday as the Sabbath glow track, right? Another Sabbath school class says, well, we're going to do, we're going to go visit people who are shut in, in our church. Another Sabbath school class says, we're going to go and knock on doors and try to find Bible studies. I mean, there's all kinds of things a Sabbath school could do, and it doesn't even have to always be on Sabbath. Maybe one of the Sabbath school classes says, we're going to take up the task of working with single mothers. And with all the single mothers in our church or even in our community, we're going to work with them. Why? Because one of our members is a mechanic. And we know that single mothers have trouble with their cars. We're going to have a, a, a clinic for single mothers who can come here and we'll advertise it even in the, in the community that we're going to have this, this clinic here and we're going to do that. It's going to be our Sabbath school's mission project. Now, I'm not even making this up. I know down in Berrien Springs, there's a church that did this exact thing, and they made it a mission of that particular Sabbath school class, and it turned out to be a wonderful outreach ministry that they were doing. I'm trying to say to you, think outside of the box. Sabbath school's not just coming together on Sabbath morning to feed yourself the Sabbath school lesson that you didn't study all week. Amen. All right, I'm, you know, I'm... 
I'm stepping on toes. Quit beating us up, right, Jeff, uh, Fran? Hey, look, we're all there. I've gone through those challenges in my own life and trying to figure out how to do those things and incorporate them. But this is what Sabbath school has become, and it shouldn't be that way. Wouldn't your Sabbath school be a vibrant place if the Sabbath school superintendent said, uh, on Sabbath, you're going to want to be here at Sabbath school because we're going to have a testimony of what God has done in this person's life, and they're going to be here, and they're going to give that testimony. What an exciting event that's going to be. How exciting that would be. All right? Carla, can I pick on you again? Sure, I've already done it once. Why not do it again, okay? I once gave a, had an evangelistic meeting in Holly, Michigan, and at that meeting there was a mother and a daughter who came to the, those meetings. And along with the other people, they were learning those basic truths and including the Sabbath and how to incorporate that in, uh, in their lives and working with that. And you know, when you first get acquainted with people, you don't really realize how that truth is having an impact on them, what it is doing in their, in their particular life. And, and as uh, we got in, acquainted with this, this couple, uh, with this mother and daughter, and we got over to their home and started visiting with them as they were continuing to come to the meetings and getting acquainted with them, we found that there were a couple of things that were happening. That the daughter was in high school, and mother and daughters, they would go to school, back and forth to school. They would be listening to the recordings of the, of the meetings and learning again those things and, and, and sharing with them and figuring out what they were going to do with them. Eventually, the daughter who was in high school and heavily involved in sports realized that she was going to have to make a really serious decision about how she was going to handle that situation because those sports activities in the public high school were on Sabbath. And so she said, look, I gotta make a decision what I'm gonna do with this. We're talking about a teenage girl who's first learning, uh, for the first time learning about the Seventh-day Sabbath, but convicted enough by the Spirit of God that says this is truth and I'm gonna have to live by that. What an amazing testimony that could possibly be if you were sharing that in your church, when you brought, when you, when that young lady shares that she made the decision and she said, I'm not going to go to those, that's, those sports activities anymore on Sabbath. I'm, I'm out of it. You know what? That's a huge sacrifice, right? That's a huge, can you imagine what a powerful testimony that would be on a Sabbath morning and people had, you had that regularly in your church because you had active soul winning things going on and people sharing their stories and that, those kinds of things and all of that. Now I don't know exactly how that's transpired because it's been a few years down along the way, but the mother I'm talking about is Carla. Okay, now isn't that more interesting to you and would that change your Sabbath school along the way if your Sabbath school started to focus on those kinds of things and had those kinds of experiences. But our churches are dead when it comes to these things and we don't have those kinds of experiences to share. I haven't seen Carla for a while. She walked into my class here this afternoon and I just couldn't resist the opportunity. She's been very kind and gracious to share that. I shouldn't have said that when I walked in, should I? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, but... All I'm saying to you is let's make life vibrant and, uh, and valuable. Is it really quarter to five? What time do we start? We're out of, minute, out of time, aren't we?
All right. I'm almost done, actually. Let me go through the last part of these. I'm trying to say, all right, as leaders of the church, help your church to grow in the area of soul winning. Number five is every church provides resources and training for truth-sharing personal ministry. You need to organize your church. Deacons, your phys the physical plant is your responsibility. Help your personal ministries department figure out where they can have a space, if they don't already have it, where people who are giving Bible studies can get their resources for doing that. Set up a physical place in your church. Figure out how to do that and, and, and take care of that part of it. Number six, every member is nurtured into active participation in truth-sharing personal ministries. It's that every member part I've already talked about. Number seven, every new member discipleship experience includes personal spiritual growth, doctrinal understandings, church integration, personal witnessing, church ministries. That's that discipleship handbook. And I've already talked to you about all of that. Number eight, every church has a regular and timely process of review, evaluation, and reporting. That's why you meet at your board meeting. When you have a health class, um, let's say it's in February and your board meeting is at, uh, is the first part of March. You had a health class and that board meeting on, in March, you discuss how it went. Did it go well? What did you learn from it? Did you make mistakes? What, what do you want to do next time you do it? And don't be discouraged if it didn't go well. Still keep doing it because you grow from learning with it. Don't think that people don't want it out there. God may be waiting for you to start getting things in the right place. If you got flooded with 500 people the first time you did it and you flubbed it all up, you'd be discouraged with that too, wouldn't you? So sometimes you have to learn how to do it. But the board evaluates this and says, okay, how do we keep doing this? How do we keep moving it? All right, what's our next event that we're going to be doing for soul winning? What's happening in the latter part of March and before we have our next board meeting? What de decisions do we have to make? And you keep doing that every board meeting. Maybe less discussion about the color of gar carpeting and what you're going to do to win more souls is the discussion that you need to be having at your board level. You are, the you are the leaders of your church. With the elders and the deacons and the deaconesses working together, you can make a huge difference in your church. The soul winning of the church is the focus of your church, and that's part of your work and your responsibility. I've taken it away from simply taking up the offering, simply doing, taking care of a communion service. As important as those things are, it's time to say, all right, let's get God's work done. By the Spirit of God working in our hearts and lives and working through you as leaders, God is going to change things to a finished work instead of just a floundering work. Okay? Let's have a prayer as we conclude. Father in heaven, we want to be the leaders of our church. We want to be soul winners in the church. We want to be actively working for you as disciples. Here we're talking to deacons and deaconesses individuals committed to some of those special aspects of ministry that involve the physical needs of people. I pray, Father, that as they contemplate these opportunities and these challenges, that you will give them wisdom how to incorporate these things in their churches. As we go our way for the rest of this evening, please go with us, and may your Holy Spirit continue to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit 
www.audioverse.org.